this is episode 72. 72. That's so cool. At one point, this podcast was just a dream. But anyway, this is episode 72 of I'd Rather Be Reading, and we have covered the gamut of topics. But one subject we haven't really tackled yet is that of friendship, specifically friendship amongst adults. Dr. Marissa Franco's book, Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends, explores not only the power of friendship, but how to bring it more into our lives. A little about her. She is a psychologist and friendship expert, pretty cool, who has studied friendship all over the world. She has been featured in outlets like Psychology Today, Scientific American, and the New York Times, and she argues that friendship is often ranked second tier to other connections, and through her work, friendship is made a priority. I know how much friendship has meant to me personally, so I was very interested to have this conversation. It's a great topic and one I'm excited to delve into with you. Take a listen. Welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here and talk about one of my favorite topics, which is friendship. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So I would love to know what led you to want to write a book about friendship. We were just talking offline a moment ago, and I told you, and I know this is true for you as well, because you wrote about it in the book, that friendship is a cornerstone of both of our lives. So why did this topic of friendship compel you? Well, really, I think it was me repenting that it didn't always compel me because In my young 20s, I was really a lot more preoccupied with romance and Mm -hmm. I went through some breakups and I felt so bad. So I started this wellness group with my friends. We met up, we cooked, did yoga together, meditated, and it was so healing. And it was, you know, the community was even more healing than all the wellness activities. And I looked around and I started to question some of the beliefs that I think really had contributed to my grief that romantic love was the only love that mattered, the only love that made me lovable, and platonic love wasn't a legitimate form of love. I couldn't count it as being loved if I was loved by just friends and not a romantic partner. And, you know, I really began to question that because of the colossal force of my friend's love that I really started to feel. And I felt like there's just this larger societal problem that it's not just me that we have such a hierarchy on love. And in a society that's so lonely, it feels like oh, there's all this gold under our feet, but we we just see it as concrete. So I really wrote platonic to help elevate the status of platonic love. And I think for people to find the deep, profound platonic love that they might be looking for, they have to understand how to find it and how to cultivate it. So that's really what the book's about. I love it. And I want to touch on a point that you just brought up. I have fallen into this trap as well of believing that romantic love is the only love that matters and that friends are are lower on the totem pole than the love in my life, which I now believe at, at 35, nearly 36 is incorrect. You write in the book, quote, platonic love lies on the lowest rung of the hierarchy our culture places on love. That is so true. We value romantic love so much, not always friendship. Why is this so? Yeah, this is a great question. So it wasn't always like this. 
we didn't always love on such a hierarchy. And in fact, in the past, like sort of like early 1800s and before in the Western world, friends were really people's most intimate relationships because at that time, you know, and, and a little bit before then, people weren't getting married for love. They were getting married for resources. It was a practical and strategic decision to marry someone who would benefit your family name. And, you know, around that time, the genders were considered so distinct that the assumption was you can't really deeply connect with someone who's a different gender than you. So at that time, friends would go on, you know, each other's honeymoons. They would carve their names into trees, hold hands, share beds. Um, there was just a lot of intimacy. They write these letters to each other that you look back and we would probably call love letters through our lens now. And then what really changed is that you know, at that time, it was really taboo to have same-sex sexual experiences, but it was not taboo to engage in the gamut of behaviors that we now stigmatize and link to people's sexual orientation, right? Like, so at that time, because it was only the sex that was stigmatized, you could cuddle with your friends. You could tell your friends how deeply you love them, write them poems, you know, because none of this was sexual. But then our sort of conception of sexual orientation and, you know, sexual attraction really began to change with, with Sigmund Freud and another psychiatrist. And they really wanted to help clamp down all the same sex sexual acts that were happening as people were moving into cities. So they sort of created this theory that same-sex sexual love was a sexual disorder and that it defined someone's larger identity. And so out of that, we got the concept of sexual orientation, which meant that it wasn't just a same-sex sexual act that was taboo. It was anything that could now indicate a same-sex interest in sexual orientation. It was anything that could indicate this sort of non-heterosexual identity. So mm -hmm. all of a sudden, friends started to feel uncomfortable holding hands, cuddling with each other, sharing beds, expressing deep love, expressing deep intimacy to each other. And mm -hmm. that really ravaged friendships, particularly for men in a way that we really haven't come back from. Yeah, especially for men, but that's so fascinating. And I I now see my friends on an equal, I need, I need all people because here's the thing I, what I was doing and let's not get too deep into my romantic life on here. Cause that's not where we want to go. Trust me. But <laughs> I was, I was um, putting so much stock and emphasis on the man in my life and you can't expect to put all of your eggs in one basket and expect one person to be all things. And, you know, I, I've always had wonderful friendships with actually with both men and women, but I really put that romantic love on a pedestal. I think most of us have, but now I'm realizing I need all of these people at the table to make my life as rich as it is. And I'm glad that it didn't take me much longer than it did into my early 30, early to mid thirties to learn that. And, you know, you write in the book that friendship as an adult is, it, it does not happen organically. I would love mm -hmm. to have you unpack that for us before jumping into a little high level discussion of how we can make friends as an adult. Yeah, absolutely. So when we were kids, schools gave us certain ingredients that foster organic friendship repeated unplanned interaction. We saw each other every day. We didn't plan it. And vulnerability, right? Which we were afforded in recess, at lunch, you know, in gym class. And, you know, Rebecca G. Adams, she's a sociologist who argues these are the ingredients that foster organic friendship. 
as adults, we haven't realized that our infrastructure, our environments do not provide these ingredients like they did when we were children. At work, we see each other every day, but we're not often vulnerable. We're often showing such a small, tiny slice of ourselves, so much so that one study actually found that the more time we spend together at work, the less close we feel. And so what does that mean that if we rely on the same template we did when we were kids for it to just happen, it's not going to happen because we're fundamentally in a different environment. And, in and fact, then we get people- frustrated when it doesn't happen like that as easy, quote unquote, easy or organically as that. And then we think there's something wrong with us. And then we go down a spiral. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, you know, people that think friendship happens based on luck are, are lonelier years later, whereas people that see it happening as based on effort are less lonely. So I think a lot of us, we want to make friends, but we're just sort of waiting for someone to approach us, right? Not knowing that as adults, we need to learn to take the initiative. We need to learn to approach because those people that do are less lonely and they find connection. Exactly. Well, let's jump into that for a minute. So listeners, if you want the full scope of this question, read the book, buy the book, please buy the book. It's so good. But if there were a few key points on how to make friends as an adult, other than, again, reading the book for the full scope, high level, what would some of those key points be? How do we make friends as an adult? Yeah. So I'll first focus on mindset. People are less likely to reject you than you think. Um, There's a study on something called the liking gap where strangers interact and predict how much the other person likes them. Across the board, people underestimate how liked they are by other people. Mm -hmm. So One important tip that I share is to assume people like you because when researchers told people that they'd go into a group and be liked, they became warmer, friendlier, more open, and it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whereas people that fear rejection tend to reject people. They're not, they don't understand that they're coming off this way, but when they feel rejected, they come off as cold and withdrawn, even if they're not actually being rejected. So it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy too. So really important to assume people like you. I suggest joining something that's repeated over time, like doing a hobby in community. There's, you know, your writing group, your book club, your walking group, you know, your exercise group. There's all different ways you can do this. But I suggest that because just going to a one-off event, it's a lot harder to form connections. Again, continuous unplanned interaction because of something called the mere exposure effect, which is our tendency to like people when they are familiar to us. This is completely unconscious. Researchers planted women in a psychology lecture. And at the end of the semester, nobody remembered the woman, but they liked the woman who showed up for the most lectures, 20% more than the woman who showed up for the least. So, so what this indicates is that when we first start socializing, meeting new people, it's normal for it to be awkward, for us to be weary, right? Mere exposure hasn't set in, it's uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean it's gonna feel that way when we continue to commit. So I like to say like, maybe try out a few different groups, find one you like, and then commit for three months because your relationship by the end of those three months is gonna be very different than at the beginning. Yeah. And the, la- the last tip I'll share, because I think people might go to social, I'm saying people, I'm like, this is me in the past. Um, <laughs> go to these social events, waiting for someone to approach you, right? And why isn't anyone approaching me? Nobody's being warm to me. Nobody's welcoming to me. But in platonic, I really push people. You need to hold yourself accountable in the same ways that you're wanting to hold other people accountable. Mm -hmm. So you have to overcome two types of avoidance, overt avoidance, which is 
I'm scared of people, so I don't show up. And then covert avoidance, which is I show up physically, but check out mentally. I don't engage. I'm on my phone the entire time. I talk to the one person I know. I'm watching the TV, right? Um, so overcoming covert avoidance looks like saying, hey, I'm Marissa. How long have you been a member of this book club? What did you think of this week's book, right? Um, engaging mm -hmm. with other people. And finally, generate exclusivity, which means develop experiences with someone in the group separately, memories that you share with that person that you don't share with everyone else. And that just looks like, hey, it's been so great to get to know you in this running group. Would you be open to going to lunch before next week's group, for example? Yes, yes. And that does take courage and vulnerability, but I've done that in my life and it has paid off in spades. And I want to also talk about, so I, I feel, this is me speaking, not you. I feel like making friends is half the battle, 50%. Then keeping friends, right? So you've made a friend. That's that you're halfway there. I think, what are some, what are some tips to keeping friends? And the book really goes into vulnerability, authenticity, all kinds of things, because, you know, the first step is maybe making that that ask for the lunch or the coffee or the whatever. But then yeah. now we're, yeah. we're building a, a relationship here. We're building a friendship. So how do, how do we best on a high level keep friends? Yeah, this is a great question. So the number one quality people report looking for in a friend is called ego support, which is that you make other people feel valued. And there's a theory of liking called the theory of inferred attraction, which is people like people who they think like them, right? So, mm -hmm. so what you do when you convey affection, affirmation of others is that you assuage their fears of rejection. And according to a theory called risk regulation theory, we decide how much to invest in a relationship based on our read of how likely we are to get rejected. So those people that really make other people feel like they belong end up belonging because people feel safe to invest in them, which is why in the book, I really emphasize things like affirming other people or being generous towards other people, like anything that's sort of kind and thoughtful and shows people that you value them really creates that, that connection. One study looked at uh, budding friendship pairs, followed them for 12 weeks, which of the pairs stayed friends. One of the most significant factors was how much each person expressed affection and affirmation of the other person. So that's really big. And like you mentioned already, another factor that's really important is vulnerability because we think that, you know, we burden people with our vulnerability. But in fact, the biggest burden we often place on people is our silence because vulnerability, intimate self-disclosure is linked to being liked more rather than less. Mm -hmm. And it's similar to the theory of inferred attraction. When you're vulnerable to someone, in some ways you're conveying that you like them. It's like, hey, I trust you to right. share this, this piece of me with myself. And it makes us feel known. And I think the depth of our relationship is really determined by the extent to which we feel fully known. And so vulnerability really does that for us. Yes. And, you know, before we, I'm so excited to get into attachment styles with you because I'm personally so interested in that, but I just kind of want to quantify friendship here for a moment. I mean, it's impossible to maybe put it into words if, if in, you did it in your book, but I'm talking about in words in a, on a podcast here, but the book says it so beautifully when it writes about the colossal importance of friends. I love the way that you phrased that. So why does friendship matter so much and how does friendship transform us? Yeah. Yeah, this is a great question. So, 
you know, I argue in the book that our personalities are fundamentally a reflection of our previous experiences of connection or lack thereof. This is similar to what attachment theory is arguing. So, right, if you're friendly, open, warm, vulnerable, cynical, mistrusting, all of these are aspects of your personality that are predicted by whether you've had healthy relationships in the past, starting with your parents and evolving from there. You know, around adolescence is when friendships become our primary attachment figures. So they become, they start to really affect our, our template of how we think other people will treat us. And we find that people that really have these healthy friendships develop the sort of personality that lends itself to continued connection, right? So friends make us better friends, basically. Mm. Um, you know, these people are more loving, more affectionate, more generous, right? Less afraid, of rejection, for example, they're more secure once we get into attachment theory. Um, but the other thing that friends really give us, you know, two two other things. One is that we've always needed an entire community to feel whole. And there's actually three different types of loneliness, only one that can be fulfilled by a traditional spouse. That's intimate loneliness, which is desire for someone close and intimate. Uh, we could also obviously fulfill that through a best friend. But there's also relational loneliness, which is a desire for sort of a close friendship type relationship. And then collective loneliness, which is desire for a community working towards a common goal, like your bowling leagues, your places of worship, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and the reason, part of the reason we need all these different communities is because um, of something called self-expansion theory, that each of our relationships are the primary vehicle through which we expand ourselves. And if we're only interacting with one person all the time, like our traditional template of, you know, finding your one and only, we're only having an experience of ourselves. It flattens the richness of who we are. You yes. know, if I love biking, but my spouse does not, how often am I going to bike unless I have, you know, alternative people to share that passion with? So each friend can sort of bring out a different side of ourselves, a different side of our identities and allow us to experience the richness of our fullest selves. That's exactly what I was trying to say earlier, but much less, but not nearly as well as you just did. That is exactly right. It takes the whole scope of the community to make us our best selves. Absolutely. So I want to talk about the science of attachment for a moment. I love to study this in the context of romantic relationships, but it also makes total sense to work in friendships as well. So I am very aware of the three most, I guess, accepted attachment styles, secure, anxious, and avoidant. But for our listeners who are unfamiliar with attachment styles, can you talk us through on a high level what a secure attachment, an anxious attachment, and an avoidant attachment are? Yeah. So each of these attachment styles are basically predictions, expectations, and strategies. In other words, they're they're just your template for how people will treat you. And you develop a bunch of strategies to respond to your ideas of how people will treat you. Um, and they develop, they're adaptive for a certain environment for the relationship in which they were originally formed, but they are no longer adaptive as we are in different environments where our relationships change. And so the three different attachment styles are first securely attached people, right? They tend to be the best at friendships. The, the studies find they're more likely to initiate new friendships, more likely to maintain them, better at handling conflict in friendships. They know how to be vulnerable without oversharing. Um, they're better at perspective taking of other people. They don't just think about their own needs. They think about their friends' needs too. They're pretty healing as friends. Um, but then, and they, you know, they've experienced past healthy relationships, which has really sort of facilitated their security. Mm -hmm. But then we have anxiously attached people. Their history is people have been 
inconsistent or misattuned with their needs. And they've developed this fear that everybody will abandon them. So they tend to think they're being rejected, even when they're not, their brain misfires. They become preoccupied with relationship issues and problems. You know, a friend had a different mood one day and it's all they can think about. Um, they don't handle conflict well. They ignore it until they sort of have to blow up because again, they think people will abandon them. They tend to form friendships really, really fast as a way to soothe those fears of abandonment. But then those friendships tend to be more volatile um, because they have less of a foundation. And their friendships in general are just a little bit more fragile, less likely to sort of stand the test of time because of a lot of these characteristics that they bring to the table. Um, and then you have avoidantly attached, avoidantly attached people. These people have experienced relationships that have are characterized by emotional neglect, right? They, they felt sad, they felt bad, and their parents and then, you know, new people then after have shown them that when they need support, they will be alone in that, right? Don't cry, you know, this is up to you, you know, you, you, should, you shouldn't act so weak, that those sort of messages, right? So what, what avoidantly attached people are is that they kind of suppress their need for connection. They suppress all their feelings, really, because they've been, been taught that their feelings aren't acceptable. So they don't feel much joy in friendship. They invest less, initiate less. They're more likely to ghost on you as a friend. You know, they have these one-sided friendships with people that, because they're not, you know, they're not doing much to, to keep their friendships alive, fundamentally because they don't trust others. They, they think if I get close to people, they will take advantage of me. So they really keep others at a distance. It's like the lone wolf or else even the person with a ton of friends, but they're very shallow. Their friends don't feel like they really know them. They mm -hmm. really struggle with vulnerability, both in themselves and in others. So, and I would say this is true for friendship as well, but in the context of a romantic relationship, secure attachment seems to be, if there is one, the quote unquote ideal attachment style, right? Um, if yeah. you are an anxiously attached person or avoidant, is it possible to move more towards being secure because that it seems to be that that is what we all want to be. I mean, at least on paper, that's, we all want to have secure attachments um, if we had the choice. So is there a way to move more towards the secure attachment if we happen to be yeah. or avoidant? Yeah, Rachel, this is a really good question because sometimes I share this message of attachment and people are like, good for those people with their good childhood. Right. Like, <laughs> where does that leave me? Right. right. Um, and the good news is hopefully it leaves you feeling very empowered because you can absolutely change your attachment style. And in fact, studies find that even knowing that attachment theory exists helps you change your attachment style. Um, there's not a lot of research on this, but some studies actually find we're more likely to change our attachment style than to keep it. And as we get older, we tend to just, you know, become more secure with a lot more relationship experience. So absolutely, that is fundamentally what the book is about how do you change your attachment style? And each chapter gives you tips on, on how to be more secure in friendship. One big one that I'll sort of revisit, because I, I mentioned this earlier, you know, when I was reading all the studies on attachment, there's one study that, that presented kids with the story of them being in the cafeteria, friend approaches on them and spills milk on them. How do they interpret it, right? The secure kids were like, that was an accident. My friend's clumsy, it's okay. The insecure kids were like, my friend tried to humiliate me. I want to put splash milk back on them, right? <laughs> so you could see how these insecurely attached people, they assume others have negative intent. They assume others are out to get them. Whereas the securely attached people, 
they just think people like them. That is their assumption that people like them. And so when I say assume people like you, it's 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 facilitative, obviously, for creating connections, but also for changing your attachment style. Because according to the sociometric theory of self-esteem, this theory basically argues that your self-esteem isn't just how you feel about yourself. It's your gauge of how you think other people see you. So the more you assume others see you more positively, the more confident you then are going to become. Now, mm -hmm. I know that's not easy. It's it's totally a practice. It's not going to be like one moment I'm like, I'm just going to think people like me. And then it just overrides all of your insecurities, right? Um, there's ways to do this more intentionally. I really like psychologist Rick Hansen's work. He studies taking in the good. And what he suggests is that because if you're insecurely attached, right, it's a big confirmation bias. You're looking for experiences that match your template that people are going to reject you or, or betray you or abandon you. And in fact, you're acting in ways, unfortunately, that facilitate this behavior in others, right? If you're anxiously attached, you're clinging so, so quickly and so intensely that people need to separate themselves for agency. If you're avoidantly attached, you're not investing anything in the relationship. Eventually people peter away because they're not getting that reciprocity, right? Yeah. So you continue to feel like, oh my gosh, everybody's doing exactly what I thought they'd do. Everybody's going to abandon me. I can't trust anyone. But, but Rick Hansen's work really teaches us, us when we have a positive moment in our friendships to just savor it, to yeah. pause. I like to take a deep breath, acknowledge that someone just smiled at me, let it stir an emotion in me like joy or happiness or appreciation. You know, you can do this right now. If you go on your phone, look at your last five photos. And if there's one that includes social safety, like a friend, you know, hanging out with friends or someone smiling at you, just pause and take that in and make that a practice of taking in moments of social safety. Because Rick Hansen argues, what is state becomes trait. What you practice over time becomes part of your neural wiring. Um, and when we, when we release emotion, it triggers uh, brain change because we release hormones like dopamine and norepinephrine that, that help with neural rewiring, rewiring how your brain works, right? And so it's a practice of acknowledging and receiving moments of social safety that really counteract the assumptions you make about others based on insecure attachment styles. That's so good. I mean, yes, it's, it, this, this book really opened my mind to so many things I'd never thought about. You also tackle a tough topic in the book, which is when to end a friendship. That's really difficult. Um, it's, it's sometimes a lot more clear when to end a romantic relationship than when to end a friendship. So when does one know, and I realize as I'm asking this, that it will be different for every single friendship, not just the every person, but every friendship that a person has. But when does one know generally that a friendship is no longer serving them? What are some key signs? Yeah. So a few signs that, you know, first the friendship may be unhealthy, which is different from the friendship not serving you, right? That that could just be about a values difference. But the friendship is unhealthy if you see things like your friends outright malicious, when you have achievements or accomplishments, they sort of minimize them. They don't try to support you in times of need. There's a breakdown in reciprocity. You're always doing so much more to serve them. They're not meeting you halfway. They don't follow through with what they say they're going to do, right? And mm. if you have a conflict with this type of friend, it may be a sign to end instead of mend, right? But I say if you... Our problem is, though, that often we have conflicts with friends that otherwise love us, otherwise show up for us, but one issue kind of happens and we don't address it and it continues to build over time. And 
slowly cause us to sort of fade away. I think, you know, this is, this is my definitely anxiously attached side. I definitely feared having conflict with friends. I thought it was my job to just get over it. We don't have a lot of scripts of working through conflict and friendships like we do with romantic relationships. In fact, we say like, friendship should be easy and positive, which is, it was not true. Intimacy is intimacy. Intimacy is going to require yes. difficult conversation yes. no matter what kind. Yeah. Yes. So I um, had read a study in my journey that you know, having open empathic conflict is linked to deeper intimacy and addressing things passive aggressively actually gives people higher, the on the receiving end, higher blood pressure. So I was like, oh, I'm actually sabotaging my friendships by not bringing up issues <laughs> and problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so if it's that otherwise positive friendship where you know they love you, but you have a certain issue that sort of came up, if it's just a sort of chapter in the larger book of friendships that you're having issues rather than the entire book, then I think it's important to actually bring up the conflict so that you can heal from it. So good. We're nearing the end of our time together, which I hate, but I want to touch on this because this is this is a season that I'm in right now. You write in the book that friendship is flexible depending on our needs. So I want to talk about this because this is, like I said, this is the season that I'm in. What happens when you've made friends either as a child or an adolescent or as an adult, and you happen to be in very different seasons of life? For example, I don't have children at the moment. Many of my friends do. It is wild. My life is wildly different from my friends with children who I'm, as I said earlier, I'm 35, I'll be 36 in a week or so. And so many of my friends have children and I have tried to find ways. And I think we're doing, my my friendships are doing well with me going to kids t-ball games or kids soccer games and meeting my friends where they are. But I would love to, I can't have you on my show and not selfishly ask this question. (laughs) How can one power through being in just very different seasons of life and maintain a strong connection? Yeah. Well, first, happy early birthday. Thank um, you so much. You're welcome. And second, you know, it kind of it's it is hard. It is difficult. I think a lot of the times we assume that our friendships will be the same forever and we might compare them to what they could have been when we were at the same life stages, right? And I think it's important to think of it as like a rebirth of a friendship, the friendship anew, that we don't have to compare it to what it was because the situation is sort of different now. Um, there's another study that I really like that talks about, you know, if you have these long distance friends, thinking of them as flexible, not fragile. So what does that mean? That if we don't connect in the same ways at the same frequency, because, you know, people are at different life stages, they might have more childbearing responsibilities, then we can see it as, okay, this may be an ebb and flow in our relationship, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that there won't be another time where we can be closer again, right? But the, but I think what you're really doing right, Rachel, is that just because we don't have the same life experiences doesn't mean we can't show interest in each other's lives. And, you know, this is a concept called identity affirmation, which is you're able to affirm people's identities even when they don't share your own identities, right? You're still able to show interest in them, to judge them by their own values rather than your values. So if they're really happy to have kids and you never wanted to have kids, being happy for them because they're living a life that actualizes them, right? They don't have to live the life that you would pick for yourself. And being able to show that interest in, oh yeah, like tell me more about your kid. Like, how's that been going? And, And hopefully that's mutual too, that even if you're not having that experience, you're having different experiences of connection in your life, that your friend is also 
also interested in that as well and wants to talk about, you know, the experiences that you have without kids, for example. Right. So right. I take I think it takes that we don't have the same experience, but we're still interested and invested in each other's experiences. That is really important. Yeah. And I mean, even last night, last night I went over to a friend's house. She has a three-year-old and a three-month-old and she was washing bottles while I was playing with her three-year-old in the living room. And we were talking and we were catching up, you know, we just meet people where they are. You do the best you can exactly. with the situation of life that, you, that you're, that you're in. And um, I do want to have children someday and I don't yet, but it's, I feel like I'm in a master class of children. You know, I mean, you never, you never <laughs> know like until it. you're actually in your, in your own experience with having children. But I mean, I've, I've been in the hospital with my friends giving birth. I've, you know, I've, wow. I've wiped their children's bottoms, you know, I mean, so it's, it's a, for me, it's a great learning opportunity too. And, um, you know, last night yeah. was really fun. We got to see each other. Um, she kept on with her evening routine and, that and we got time together and it and it worked and we had spaghetti for or as her three year old said sketty for for dinner and we made it happen so our time together is coming to a close I hate that I could talk to you all day but my last question for you is what do you hope readers get out of the book because I got so much out of platonic but what do you hope that readers get out of the book you know there's this way that studying friendship has taught me that intimacy is intimacy and that what is required of our romantic partnerships, much of it is required of us to have great friendships, right? Like, I think that we don't always notice the ways that we see friendship as inferior, but our actions actually are making it inferior because we don't affirm our friends as much. We don't spend as much time with them, right? We don't show up for them as deeply. We don't travel to see them. And so our friendships are inferior, not because of anything that's trivial about friendship, but because we've been taught to treat our friendships as trivial. And so I really hope that this book expands people's scripts for what friendship could be and makes people understand that what good friendship really is, right? Because I think a lot of us think that good company is good friendship and good company to me is someone whose company you enjoy, right? Good friendship to me is a commitment and an investment in another person. It takes effort. It's showing up when people need support. It's affirming them when they experience successes. It's creating safe spaces for them to be vulnerable, right? It takes work. It takes effort but it is absolutely worth it. And so I hope that I can really push people to see friendship in this way and to begin to level some of this great hierarchy that we put on love that I think makes all of us, whether we're inside romantic relationships or outside of them, a lot more lonely. Such a fascinating conversation. The book is Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. It is out now. Thank you so much for being here today and for this incredibly interesting conversation. It was my pleasure, Rachel. Thanks so much for your excitement. I think this conversation is a great companion piece to this week's conversation about belonging with Professor Jeffrey Cohen. If you missed that episode, head back an episode to episode 71 and check it out. We'll be back soon with more interesting conversations. So many conversations I'm so excited about. But until then, have a great week.